All right, everybody. <clears throat> so my name is Michael Derwinkle. I'm the Territory Sales Manager and Marketing Manager at Jane Irrigation. Um, we're doing these webinars twice a week, and this is a subject that keeps coming up and requested by a lot of our customers. Along with him, people are growing tomatoes, strawberries, um, you know, all kinds of things indoors now, either in hoop houses or in big grow rooms with complex lighting, like you can see in this opening photo. And we wanted to make sure that everyone felt versed on the irrigation products that exist um, in these systems, a lot that we're familiar with in landscape already. Um, so there, there's some redundancies in knowledge and opportunities for contractors to potentially move some of their business inside. And so hopefully we can spotlight and showcase some of that today. And as we yeah, move so, forward, sorry, Richard. Michael, if I could just interrupt a second, I want to say, uh, you know, th thank you to everybody for joining today as well. And uh, uh, we will be taking uh, questions during Michael's presentation, and you can put those into the Q and A box. And uh, I'll be asking those as we go along. And and I feel really uh, thankful that we have Michael today to do this presentation. You know, I've worked with Michael for a long time now, uh, not just at Jane, but at Valley Crest also. And the thing I really appreciate about Michael is his practical experience when it comes to irrigation as well as his uh, theoretical. Uh, he understands both very well, having been a uh, former contractor, both on his own and at Valley Crest, and then uh, uh, working now uh, with uh, with us at Jane. So uh, I know Michael's had some great experience uh, on putting some uh, in, in the construction and development of some really big grow houses in the U.S. And so anyway, that's why I'm excited, Michael, to have you on here today. And yeah, please have uh, people funnel the uh, questions through the Q&A or through the chat, and I'll be asking those of you. So all right, thank you. Sorry, Michael, go ahead. Uh, no worries at all. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, ask questions as you would like, and you know, we'll deliver this recording uh, to everybody that participated in it later today. So you'll have the slides for reference. So if there's any part numbers or you know, um, relevant topics on there, you'll have, you'll have it for later. Um, <clears throat> so getting started, this is, this, is a big, this is a big grow room that we work on. Um, this is one of 12 rooms in a facility. Uh, a lot of these components look familiar, ball valves, manifolds. There's, on these particular tables, we have about 64 octobubblers, which we'll talk about in a second going down each side. Um, you know, so we have over 1200 plants on each bench. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of cultivating that's being done in a single room, which means there's a lot of liability, a lot of risk. And those are some of the things that, you know, with consistent design and quality products, hopefully we can uh, eliminate. Some key details. Um, these are some popular questions we get from first time growers and then uh, even some more complex uh, key details for seasoned growers. Um, so I wanted everybody to have this slide for reference um, potentially after this recording. Uh, the cultivation for indoors, you know, a good indoor can get four to five yields every year um, for cannabis in particular. Uh, so we're trying to grow and water as fast as we can without oversaturating the plants. And we do that with the use of a lot of our drip products. And I'm not going to go down the list specifically, so you can, I'll give you a second to read this. Richard, I don't know if there's any questions off the key details page, but this is basically going to be a lot of things that we're really not going to talk too much more about, but just general key details in design of systems indoors. Yes, I think one of the questions that a lot of uh, growers have, Michael, and, and uh, you know, I think it's complicated enough doing irrigation outside. Then when you add uh, irrigation inside and what a break means or, you know, a stuck valve, uh, uh, with all the equipment, electricity around. Um, are you going to be getting into that or you want to address a little bit of that here? 
<clears throat> yeah, so uh, as I show you kind of how we mount valves, filters, how we assess flow alerts and remote monitoring through you know, the automation process, uh, once again, we're trying to reduce liability. It's, it's really concerning when you have to run so many water cycles inside, around electricity, in fire barrier walls, uh, when you're not there to watch it run. And as landscape contractors, we like wa watching water run outside. So inside, it can be even worse. Um, so I think the biggest kind of uh, circumstantial hurdle or challenge that we're coming across in indoor growers is the uh, trust to let a, an irrigation system run when they're not there at a large scale, smaller scale, understandable, but at a large scale. And as we go through here, you'll see the components that we highlight are, are designed just to do that. Okay, great. Yeah, we're looking forward to learning more about that. <clears throat> So uh, covering the irrigation topics is, is our primary goal today. And there's a lot of different options. I mean, uh, Jane, we make over 30,000 products. So same on the contracting side. Uh, I think one of, one, of the biggest, one of the biggest things that I see in our industry is there's so many options that uh, contractors don't really know what's better and what's worse. Uh, they become reliant on, on price point to, to kind of determine where the quality lies, which uh, is not always accurate. Um, and you know, one of these options that we use specifically is our point source emitters. We use this in landscape too for drought tolerant plant spacing. But basically when our plants are spread far enough apart that we don't have a, a consistent emitter spacing that we can apply emitter line or tape to, uh, we're going to actually try to apply water right to the root base. <clears throat> and we're gonna do that using, uh, in our case, a click tiff emitter. Uh, it's also referred to as a button emitter. But what, it, what it's doing is as, as a pressure compensating device, it's managing the water and the flow that goes through it constantly. So as a pressure fluctuation exists, especially indoors, usually because our valves are on the wall or on the floor, we're seeing, you know, um, <clears throat> not necessarily air gaps, but uh, there's a little bit more turbulence in the laterals and the lines than there would be outdoor buried with the security of dirt around it. Um, so we want to make sure that we mount and bracket everything properly. And point source emitters are a great, reliable way to, you know, come off with smaller quarter inch tubing, as you can see uh, in the drawing here, or come off with just a single outlet uh, to apply the water we need. And as you saw on that last slide, those are illustrations that we have on our website. We have four or five different versions uh, that we'll cover a couple of them, but they all consist of the same components. Uh, once again, very familiar products that were that we use a lot of the time. And, uh, and I'll go down the list and, and kind of talk about their priority. I'll work from the primary side out, which is uh, the first thing, the first component that sees water in an indoor system, just like an outdoor system is a control valve. Ultimately, we wanna be able to control valve, uh, control water, uh, you know, automatically. We don't wanna have to go out there and turn a faucet on and off or a ball valve on and off. Um, typically, we're gonna spec this product even if you are gonna manually bleed it, um, you know, first and then down the road, hook up a controller to it. Uh, it's referred to as a solenoid valve as well. This is a one inch version showing indoors when we're watering benches, we're typically not using giant two inch valves or inch and a half valves. That's a lot of water for uh, a plant that doesn't need uh, substantial or for most plants that are growing inside. I don't want to keep referencing cannabis, although that's probably the topic that a lot of people are interested in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so yeah, we, so we're going to start with the control valve. This is not only the automation, but this is going to control the hydraulics throughout a room. On that first slide, and we'll talk about it in a second, there's six benches per room. We made each bench its own zone, just like we would a hydro zone in an irrigation system outside. And we do that with the use of these control valves. 
And the solenoid on top of that valve is what accepts a 24 volt low signal from a controller or an automated system that we're gonna, that we'll talk about in a second that's gonna make it a little easier and consistent to water. Uh, some other components that we're not really familiar with outside in, in landscape irrigation are RO systems and some cooling systems. Um, a lot of plants inside, you know, they're getting, they're under a lot of directional light. They're getting two to three long cycles of light a day, more than they would outside. <clears throat> and so we need to cool them and they like cold water, just like any other living creature. So an RO system is, um, is something that's going to break down the molecular structure of the water molecule and make it a little easier to filter and ultimately easier for the plant to, uh, to consume once it's added with nutrients. Our spin yes. clean filter right there. Sorry, Richard. Our spin yes. clean filter right there is going to work in tandem with the valve. All right. So a lot of people are using, a lot of growers are using compost teas now, things like that. Their own concoctions of fertilizer is really important to them. Um, do they need special filtration for this or will the spin clean do it for them most of the time? So, um, so we still can't change the physics of moving a particle through a mesh of any kind. Um, and so what's going to end up happening is ultimately you're trying to uh, reduce the maintenance. Uh, you know, emission devices can get clogged. So we want a filter. A filter needs cleaning or flushing. Uh, we'll talk about flushing here in a second. That's going to help reduce some of that maintenance because we don't want to be cleaning our filters out every two days. Uh, if you're Injecting, you know, nutrients into a system. We'll also show you in a second that there's a barrel, you know, you want to keep your water uh, constantly moving around and, um, you know, the nutrients, you want it to be as consistent as possible. So you're not getting huge clumps, but ultimately if you're filtering, you're going to catch some of it. Most of it's going to make it by, which is okay, uh, but you got to protect your components. Got it. Thank you. Um, we also in the landscape side, you know, you have to prepare that liability we talked about anytime we're installing valves or mounting things to walls, as you'll see, uh, it's always good to plan for the future. And we do that with ball valves and unions. Uh, also testing hydraulics, flushing these systems, you, we're flushing air through them, we're flushing ozone through them, we're flushing a lot of different things through them. Uh, and we want the ability to turn on and turn off different areas of the system. So we'll use ball valves to do that. And then we'll use unions on our valves and filters. Uh, to make sure that if we ever have to make a repair, we don't have to take apart a, a glued manifold inside. It's just a, mm. an expense that's not necessary. And then finally, tubing is the most important. And that's what, you know, we here at Jane specialize in is tubing. We know more about tubing than I ever want to know about tubing, but we do. And one of the great things about knowing about tubing is once again, price is not always a good uh, sign of quality. Um, there's a lot of great recycled resins out there that you know, uh, are going to be more expensive than our quality virgin resin. So one of the things we try to point contractors towards is a, is a good version of supply tubing. And we also sell a, uh, a, or a flexible PVC for indoor applications as well. I think that's a great point, Michael. You know, a lot of people just assume that uh, recycling is uh, the best sustainable practice. And we know that if you're using three times the material uh, to uh, by using recycled product versus 100% uh, virgin resin that's going to last for 10, 20 plus years, uh, it's uh, uh, sometimes better to go with uh, not the recycled product. But I think that's a hard concept for people to get. And so I'm, I'm glad and, and uh, presented that. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll highlight, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about tubing in a second, because I do, I do believe tubing, just because we're running water through it, just like PVC, we, uh, we sometimes don't spend enough uh, time on it. Yeah. Um, but this particular slide here, we're talking about mounting small, you know, small diameters of tubing, uh, whether or not it be rock wool or, you know, coconut or 
whatever our growing medium is, we need to be able to hold the tubing uh, close to the surface. Um, or even if you're using a tray on top of the, uh, the, the plant, the pot, uh, you're still gonna need something to hold it. And so we have a couple staple options here. Uh, there's a six, seven different options. So, uh, you know, always ask questions of your local distributor to see if maybe there's a better one because just because it's not on the shelf doesn't mean that there's not a better option that they have it at their disposal. Uh, fittings and flush points. Uh, fittings are obviously crucial. Locking fittings inside. <clears throat> You're going to have to use a lot of barb fittings with the clamps inside as well on the vinyl. Uh, but you know, you want secure connections. And we, we do that with the use of a power lock T, which is our series. And then we want flush valves. So we talked about maintenance. How do we keep our screen filters from clogging all the time? Disc filters, screen filters all require maintenance. Even if you have a controller on auto flushing, you still need a flush point. And so in our case, this is our handy dandy uh, autom automatic air combination air relief valve. Um, and this is how it works. It comes on at the beginning of the system cycle. And then it turns off when the system's charged. And that, that's just going to get that just a little bit of debris that might have been sitting in the lines or that first surge of compost or, or tea or nutrients that's going to be run through the system. We want to make sure that that moves straight out the end of it and, um, and doesn't uh, clog any emitters or create any any filters from clogging any more than they necessarily need to. Michael, do you see many guys uh, recycling that water? You know, I see the one that looks like you have the tray and the flush valve and it looks like a drain below it. Are they draining that into wastewater? Are they recycling it? What, what are people doing with that? So um, it, it's a combination of things. Now, a lot of, a lot of our growers, as you can see in that photo, uh, it's, over a, it's over a drain. And so it's only a fragment of water coming out every time the system comes on. They're collecting it below in a five gallon bucket. Initially, the thought was they were gonna recycle it, but you get so little water out of it that it really, I mean, that five gallon bucket takes almost a week or two to fill up even close. But what they do, they use it as, you know, kind of a, a cross section or an example of the water that's going into their lines. You can see the, uh, the consistency of the nutrients and the color of the water. So you know exactly, the, you know, what your plants are getting. Uh, you can also test it to see, uh, you know, if you have profound amounts of nutrients in the line that you really don't want. A lot of the controlling of water inside is also the controlling of nutrients. It's a huge expense for growers. So anytime we can reduce the waste of nutrients or you know, provide numbers, data, and control um, over water, we're also affecting the nutrient consumption combined between water use and nutrients. These are two of the hugest um, expenses next to labor. So, uh, so we were trying to control those. And so they're recycling the water to a certain extent, but more than anything, they're using it to test and, uh, and look at on their systems. Yeah, that's a pretty unique view, right? We wish we could get that outside. Right. To really yeah. be able to see what was in your irrigation water would be great. So that's if, uh, I could, if I could get contractors to put pea gravel underneath them outside, I'd be excited. So. Right. But I'll take them buried for now. Um, so uh, this is this is what valves look like inside. Um, this is our spin clean. Our spin clean, as I noticed, this is installed upside down. I remember I took these photos before they switched them over. So if you're getting chats right now about the Y filter being upside down, it is. Um, or you win a prize. <laughs> um, so you can see that it's just a series of mounting, much like they do sprinkler, um, fire sprinklers or conduits or anything else inside. Uh, th these are all skills that outside irrigation contractors have. And the contractor here, this is in the Midwest, um, you know, this was the first project they'd ever done. We had to consult with them on how to do all this, but they picked it up really quickly and it was a very high margin um, you know, project for them. And it taught them a lot. And they've gone on to do more sites like this within a four to five state area, uh, because they feel confident doing it. And it was because of this one of these first projects that we worked on that made them feel confident. 
And so I think that's the key to that crossover opportunity for a lot of people. Um, but we do mount them. There is some surges. Our water is not protected or our pipes are not protected by dirt anymore. So they are moving around and uh, we are moving, you know, up to 40 to 50 gallons per minute sometimes. Uh, so we're going to use surge arresters throughout the system and mount and bracket anything we can. In this particular case, not only did they put ball valves and unions on, but they have these, um, these pull-away clamp breakaway uh, fittings. We don't make them, but they go on the bottom and you just pull the pins out and you're able to take the lines off so they can flush them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then these flexi those flexible lines go into the ground below the valve and then back up to the bench so there's no trip hazards because the the state and the local agencies, they're going to come out and they're going to look for fire barriers. They're going to look for trip hazards. They're going to look for slip and fall hazards for lighting issues. Um, so, and these are some of the things that we can avoid by just mounting and bracketing everything properly up front uh, for just logic's sake. And that's pretty much what the, um, the regulations are from local municipalities. And then on the left, this is a diagram showing the breakdown of some simple flow uh, some flow calculations on an octobubbler um, because we get this question a lot. What is the breakdown? What if I have a 10 gallon per hour octobubbler and I'm applying water to eight different plants, what's the consumption? Yeah. So Michael, we, we manufacture octobubblers in two, six, 10 and 20 gallon configurations, right? Yeah. So it's really interesting to me. And we have a question, you know, what's the typical flow for hemp and cannabis? And uh, it's interesting to me because I think uh, from season to season, you know, we'll see uh, two gallon popular right now or last year and 20 gallon the next year and everything in between. And so what, what's the popular flows right now? So of the four, we definitely sell more of the red, which is why we highlight them the most. 10 gallon is the most popular. I think because it's in the middle more than anything is, um, you know, we have the inserts that go in just like anybody's uh, manifold or even our competitions. You can switch out the inserts to control the flow. So I think what ends up happening is, uh, everyone leans on the side or airs on the side of not using a lot of water. And so they buy twos and then they realize that hydraulically they haven't designed their system to, um, to, they need more water than that. So they'll step it up to six or 10. So they end up meeting in the middle. Um, and you can always switch out the inserts and put more water down or less water down. Uh, but for the size of the systems for cannabis in particular, um, a system, as you've seen in these diagrams, ranges from about eight octobubblers <clears throat> to about, you know, 500. But on the smaller systems, which we see the most of, uh, they're using the 10 gallon or the red dotted octobubblers um, by far. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you. Yeah. So I put this illustration in there for, for ref future reference. Uh, this is how a Y filter works. This is another popular question. And I didn't really know this for a long time too, but basically the basin on this Y filter is what's going to collect uh, the debris. Every time the system's under pressure, uh, you have, you know, the physics of that pressure pushing the debris into the bottom of the basin and not allowing it to escape. Well, when the system's done running, you either need to flush it and push it out of the end of the system with the flush valve we talked about, or you need to have a secondary flush right there on the bottom of your filter so you can open it up and manually flush it on bigger systems like this one on the right, our big API filter, they're actually gonna have a whole separate flushing controller to, um, to make sure that it automatically, to make sure that it automatically flushes uh, throughout you know, the grow season because sending someone out to a 40 acre farm in the middle of the hills is not necessary if you can automatically flush your filters and keep them clean. Uh, going back to filter maintenance, which, which is a huge, um, you know, a huge concern with a lot of growers, keeping water clean and not having clogged emitters. Um, 
after after the valves, after the filtration, we go back to our tubing. These are some some questions that we like to ask of our customers. Um, you know, these are these are four questions that I would have never known more than four years ago. But now that I've learned more about them, they're incredibly important. If if you don't know what Prop 65 compliance is in the state of California right now, uh, then you're potentially selling something that someone's eating tomatoes out of with poison out of them. There's liability there. And so we're hearing of growers and contractors and even distributors getting visited by lawyers because they're looking for you know people to uh, to find fault in. So we make Prop 65 compliant. We broke it, broke it down and we use Dow resins, virgin resins to make sure that it doesn't have any mercury content in it and you can eat whatever uh, you're feeding through it. Um, uh, you know, rigid PVC is already compliant because it doesn't have the porous surface. So the, it doesn't really have the chemicals that can get stuck in it like a lot of the vinyls and the flexible tubing does. And so we really wanna make sure that uh, everyone's growing according to local you know, rules and laws. And we do that with Prop 65 compliance. Uh, foaming agents and fillers are just a way for manufacturers to get around selling a more virgin resin product. The more virgin resin, we go from 95 to 97.3 on our product with some UV additives only. Um, I mean, that's about the best you can get and it's going to last longer. And we'll talk about the recycling argument here in a second. But, uh, but you know, we use quality resins, which leads to a long-term product. Uh, ASB 435, these are uh, all just ways to make sure that we're providing a better product than our competition. Yeah, I love these questions, Michael. You know, uh, we did a blog article a few years ago about the uh, uh, Irrigation Consumers Bill of Rights and what we're really uh, entitled to know as consumers about this tubing because like you say, uh, many times it's going into food or products that we put in our body and uh, we, we should know what we're doing, right? We should know what we're putting in there uh, you know, we want to be sure we, we uh, eat like our life depends on it, which it does. So uh, I, I love these questions. I, I hope people will use them and, and uh, really get to the uh, bottom of, uh, of what, you know, they're using. Because like you said, most people who buy tubing, it, tubing's tubing, right? You put water yeah. in one end, it comes out the other. But yeah. we know it's a lot more complicated than that. And more importantly, it's a lot more important uh, than that. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um... Yeah, this, I mean, tubing is definitely going to be one of the most important things. And uh, the, the recycled tubing argument comes up a lot. Uh, but do you want to replace something three times in 10 years? Or do you want to buy it one time in 10 years? Um, uh, we do recycle our products, but we put it into our fittings and, uh, you know, components that aren't going to degrade because of recycled plastic. But our tubing is always going to be, you know, top of the line. Anyone out there, any of our distributors or customers on the line know that, uh, we will not fault until our, our product as far as tubing goes is quality. And these are, this slide I thought was really, was really good. Uh, again, for future reference, you know, knowing these details, knowing how a pipe degrades outside and uh, once it's in the weather, uh, it makes a big difference. And uh, you can see what, uh, how it falls apart here in cracks. And we try to avoid that. And we don't have these issues, excuse me, we don't have these issues uh, with good tubing. Okay, so um, as we hydrozone outside, we hydrozone inside. Our tables, our benches, they may range in length and width, but ultimately we're still trying to apply water to the root base of each plant. Some plants want a couple different sources of water. Some just want a single source of water. Uh, in this case, you can see how the octobubblers are mounted alongside of a bench and we're coming in with a valve and a filter and breaking up the water. We're using a couple different staples depending on you know your 
growing medium to apply water right to the root base. We know exactly how much water is going out. We know exactly how much plant uh, water the plant's getting every day. And these consistencies help for our nutrient budgeting and our water budgeting, which ultimately leads to a, a you know, good uh, savings in water, savings in overhead. Um, this is another site we did. Uh, same thing, octobubblers down the side, a little bit different spacing, little bigger plants. Um, they're coming off uh, off these sometimes and go into what we call a mini pepline. It's like a mini tree ring like we use in landscaping. Uh, sometimes we want to apply water faster so we can have multiple emitters going around the base of a, of a pot. And this allows for even distribution of the water around the stem and uh, faster application as opposed to a single water source. Uh, a smaller pot might only need a, a single water source where as these three gallons and five gallons are going to need a couple water uh, water sources or points to keep the water window within reason. Uh, there's a couple facts about the octobubbler there. This is, uh, we sell tens of thousands of these octobubblers, a lot to growers. So growers are very familiar with this product. They know that there's a repair kit for the inside. The inserts can be switched out. The ports are swivel. I mean, they connect a quarter inch tubing. So Michael, on, on those tables we just saw, and maybe on these too, I don't see any wheels on the table. Do sometimes they put wheels on the table and how does that change things? Yeah, so uh, that's my next slide. So I'll get there. Um, but yeah, you know, and then once again, we, we talked about the expense of, uh, of, of electricity and water. Uh, another one is labor. And, you know, we want to try to reduce as we visit these grow rooms, especially myself and I see uh, teams of five people over the course of two weeks assembling these manifolds. Uh, for this giant project, you know, this is something that we can uh, we can absorb. And what we did is we make these octobubbler manifolds where immediately everyone watching right now is like, well, I can screw an octobubbler on a riser and a ball valve. And why would I want to pay you an extra dollar? Well, when you're doing it 14,000 times and you've got to get them in the ground, it, it, why would you not want to rely on a resource like this? So what we've done is we make a few different versions of this half inch, three quarter inch, one inch T, and then uh, different riser heights, depending on your table. So when you go and you purchase it, you don't have to purchase the components separately. You can just purchase them a whole, get them out there, glue them together, and you're up and running. Uh, any labor that we can reduce on these sites, because they are very labor intensive when the installation starts, they have enough of a task with the mounting, um, you know, and the preparation of the manifolds. The last thing they need is, uh, is something like this that they have to do over and over. And so we make these different manifolds. And uh, that's what you see in this site here. I think we used about 13,850, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's fun the first time, right, to put it together and you go, oh, that's how it works and that's cool. Uh, and then there's a lot of different components there too. So one, it's not fun after a while, right? And it's a lot of labor. And two, I always come short a few components here and there and I'm going back and forth to the distributor to get more. So this yep. is a great way to uh, save that part of the labor I too. Mean, it's a lot, that's a lot of Teflon tape, um, you know. So you're, you're screwing a lot of stuff together. You're applying a lot of Teflon tape. It adds up. Um, and uh, you know, it also helps with design consistency. We, we, want, we want consistency. We wanna really try to enforce that people have a ball valve on every emission device or every connection because they are inside. If something goes awry, you're not outside where you can just you know, watch the backyard flood until you can run around to the side. As soon as you have a water break or a leak, you have to be able to shut it down. And the only way to isolate that is to put these valves, uh, ball valves throughout the system. And 
that's why this, this little component, I mean, as soon as someone buys one of those, I feel so much more comfortable knowing that they, they have an issue or if hydraulically, uh, maybe they didn't really know uh, every variable that needed to be taken into account. So they don't have the pressure of the water when we're trying to support something. It's way easier over the phone to say, Hey, go turn off 10 of these. Do the other 10 work better? Yes, they do. Well, then we figured out what our problem is pretty quickly. So being able to isolate the different areas of the table and the project make uh, troubleshooting in the future a lot easier. And so Richard, you had asked about a rolling table. So in this case, uh, these benches actually slide. So they're going to go back and forth and they're going to go, uh, they're going to eliminate any space. Square footage is money. And this particular site did not want to waste any money. So all these aisles, all these octobubblers, once the plants, you'll see how the lighting is spaced off the side of the walls. Um, all of these are, they'll connect together in the middle. They'll have no aisles. And then when harvest time comes around, they're able to slide them all open to, uh, one at a time to walk down the line and harvest the plants. And then the octobubblers are just mounted inside the sliding tables. And because we're using flexible lines at the end, um, it can move back and forth. So these move, they completely move uh, independently. Um, and then they can also turn off each zone and switch them out because sometimes they're only growing half a room at a time. Um, so once again, it all comes down to isolation. Yeah, wow, kudos to that planning, right? Uh, more, more yield per square foot, uh, less, uh, less rent. And, uh, and more yields, that's a, that's a great way to go. It, it comes down to what we talked about, the liability. You know, the, one of the, well, the fire codes, not only are all these walls, uh, either, I'm not a fire expert, fire resistant, but basically they had to qualify for some form of resi resistancy, but the lights have to be a certain <clears throat> spacing from the wall. So when we do that, it kind of changes the dynamic of how the benches are spaced throughout a room. We want, we, now all of a sudden the benches cannot be up against the wall. They have to be away from the wall when the lights are at their hottest because you'll just start cooking the wall. Not to mention that white radiates so much heat that a lot of these rooms, uh, you know, the tips of the plants on the outside will get yellowed or burned because of that reflective heat. So you got to take that into account and by, you know, optimizing your, your, your lighting and moving everything in under the lights and the canopy of the lights. Uh, you're keeping the outer, outer part of the room cool. It also helps with the ventilation. You can see the fans up above, um, you know, as much water goes in the room, you don't want too much humidity. So we're trying to control some of, some of the, um, the atmospheric moisture. Uh, so we do that with a series of fans, controlling our lighting and keeping our canopies closer to the centers of the room um, and ultimately controlling the water. I mean, if the pots are full of water all the time, you can only imagine the relative humidity in your room as opposed to uh, water that's safely flowing through the plants and out the end. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, sometimes multiple emitters are necessary depending on a water window. And in this case, uh, we're applying three different, there's three different um, emitters in that little 18 inch ring. So we're applying about, uh, about a gallon and a half per hour. Uh, we use the quarter inch emitter line out in contracting and landscaping. And then we also use it inside with our little staples that hovers right above the root system. So it's a great low cost way to distribute water around a, a whole plant root base. Uh, other popular items are our point source emitters. Uh, these are pressure compensating emitters. These are take apart emitters. Uh, the nutrients we talked about earlier can clog emitters. So sometimes maybe you want a, um, an emitter you can take apart. So there's, we have great take apart emitters to use. Or maybe uh, you're growing outside or in a hoop house and you're, you don't care if your button emitter is submerged in dirt or is going to need some wear and tear, then you could use something like this. It's self-flushing. So it is going to help with some clogging, uh, but ultimately you're not going to be able to take it apart for cleaning. Um, so 
moving away from the valve, moving through the filter, the regulator, the emission devices, the most important thing, all those things, we know exactly how much water they output, but the only way that that matters is if we know how long we're watering each one of them. Uh, so now that we know how many, how many gallons of water per hour per minute our emission devices, our valves are allowing to pass through them, uh, we need to control that with our water window. We can only run water so many times a day. We, when we're, we're in there harvesting across 12 rooms, uh, we can't have irrigation running. And so it becomes this kind of juggling game of when water can be run in certain rooms, on certain benches, in certain zones, uh, when the lights aren't on because you're running two 12-hour lighting cycles. Um, and instead of you know writing this on the back of your hand and trying to figure it out or some very complex laminated algorithm sheets I've seen, uh, you can just put a controller on the wall and it will do it all for you after you've set it up. So in this case, we used our smart box. Uh, Jane has ET water smart controllers. We use them outside with the weather data, but inside we use them for flow control monitoring, flow reporting, um, break. You know, if we get a break in one of these rooms, uh, the controller is going to shut the valve, master valve down as soon as possible. It's going to test it again and then it's going to move on. So maybe the break doesn't affect the whole project and we can just, you can move on from one to another um, without sacrificing the whole watering cycle. Not to mention the flow reports that this controller is going to produce through the software. Um, I mean, on this particular case, as you can see in the bottom right here, uh, in conjunction with the Dosatron uh, fertigation system, uh, they were able to see right away that they, I think there are 40 to 45% too much nutrients in the system. So right away with their water budget, they determined that they were using way too many nutrients ratio wise to their plants. Uh, and so that kind of transparency in the watering cycle you know, saved them money and now they're up and running automatically. You can use your phone throughout the, throughout the whole installation to run things when you need to, to flush them. Uh, they have a whole separate line just for air to flush the system. So when they're not using uh, pH balance or some form of a, of a cleaning for the octobubblers, they're able to push water or air through it just to make sure there's no air in the lines uh, or algae or bacterial buildup. So, I mean, they have a huge amount of control as you can see in these manifolds. Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, when, when I'd first talk about ET water controllers for indoor grow rooms, people would say, wait, that's ET. Doesn't that stand for evapotranspiration? Isn't that an outside thing? Yeah. And then as soon as you started talking about flow, you could see that uh, the benefit and the value to them just from a uh, safety insurance standpoint it's huge, right? Uh, if, if it'll stop high flow, if I have a break or low flow, if I have a little leak, uh, the potential uh, save to damage is, uh, is, is worth every penny and a lot more. Yeah, yeah. And outside, I mean, uh, ET is obviously one of the primary, uh, you know, priorities for us, especially with smart controllers. And, you know, the smart box is going to do it better than anybody. But inside, there's still a plethora of features that we can use that controller for. Um, not to mention, these guys have... Uh, a lot of their mother plants outside and they're able to check the local microclimate weather from their phones when they're not there. So they use it as kind of a weather service while he's checking his irrigation cycle from the night before and his flow. He's able to see how cold it is down, you know, 20 miles away at the site. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of benefits to having a, a true smart controller on site. I mean, break and flow. I don't think I'd want an over-the-counter flow sensor when I have 12 rooms and $3 million every season worth of yield trusting in. So uh, a smart controller upsell is a very easy one. Not to mention what the scheduling complexity, very few software can do the kind of complexity that we need to do with fertigation and whatnot. And um, the controller fit perfect. It's been working. Yeah, great. and I hadn't thought of those outside uh, uses also. That's uh, really accurate weather data for a very uh, low dollar amount. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's their hub. It's their control system for the whole site. Besides light, they are now able to control uh, water and light for the whole giant system. And, uh, you know, it, it makes everyone rest a lot easier at night. Um, so also indoor, when we consider indoor and I provide support to indoor, we have hoop houses. Some of these, some of these growers, they're growing stuff outside before they bring it inside, um, waiting for everything to get nice and big. Uh, but then also we have people that just grow in hoop houses and in hoop houses, there's where we can distribute water a little more carelessly. Uh, we can, uh, you know, a little bit overflow in the pots, maybe apply a little bit more, um, water than necessary, but, uh, ultimately it's a lot of the same components. And I've tried to outline that here in the illustrations, we can break down off of a point submitter point source emitter one, two, and four times sometimes for four plants. And we can get them nice and propagated and then potentially bring them inside for a longer light cycle or, or leave them outside. And um, as you can see, very similar components. Um, some other ones that we would use outside, not inside, uh, a lot of the hemp growers as well. We want to apply as much water as fast as possible to uh, the, the biggest square footage or footprint around the base of the plant. And so we'll use a series of very jets and what we call our aqua spray stick, which is just a non-pressure compensating stick of water that, uh, you know, you can put two on each side and quickly put down a lot of water. Yeah, everything I'm seeing here too is showing me uh, labor reduction, yeah. right? I, I, that's what I'm thinking every time I see this. I think that's great, Michael. Yeah, hand watering, uh, you know, the, the main reason people hand water is because they either just A, don't trust or know enough about the technology behind irrigation, so they continue to do it, um, or they really like hand watering and paying their friends to hold a hose all day. And I've definitely been the bearer of bad news to come in and automate systems and see six to eight of their best friends from high school get laid off. But when, you're, when it comes to capitalizing on these opportunities, you've definitely got to try to reduce labor and water consumption as much as possible. And in something like this, this is, uh, we use this, uh, our Jane Jet is a very popular uh, sprinkler in the, in the ag world, uh, especially, especially for getting like um, pistachios and almonds in the Fresno Valley up and going. And we can add a little cap to it and put it on top of a, a little stake and you can use it outside. Uh, it's not going to be compensating and it's, uh, you know, you're not going to be applying down to the droplet, but maybe you need to apply a lot of water in a hundred gallon um, pot really quickly to a mother plant. You could put a couple of these around it and like flood, particularly flood water, basically. Yeah. The other thing that's important is the, uh, the accuracy, right? When I'm, when I'm hand watering stuff, you know, my mind gets distracted yeah. and uh, did I water that plant or not? You know, <laughs> and so do I skip watering it if I'm not sure, or do I water it double? And so, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the improved accuracy too. And that's where that nutrient reduction came from on that big project in the Midwest was they were hand watering for the first six months to get everything up and running. And then as soon as we started to automate the process, they realized that their nutrient consumption went down almost by half. And they quickly realized that a lot of plants were getting more nutrients than the others. And, you know, their canopy was all over the place. There was inconsistencies. You can walk into a room right away and figure out if everyone's, if there's even lighting or if everyone's watering things properly. And they went from a canopy that was all over the place. Every plant had a different yield ranging, you know, from one or two ounces up to six ounces or four ounces. And it, it was dramatic yield differences. And those inconsistencies are really hard to budget and forecast your business around. And so as soon as that canopy gets consistent from water and light, it makes everything your nutrient, uh, you know, how much nutrients you use, it just makes the budgeting way easier. They became a way more streamlined business after all of this automation. Yeah. Hey, Mike, we have another question on the ET water controllers uh, from Narinder. And um, with the ET water controllers, if the ET function is not used, what's the scheduling criteria for these smart controllers then? What, what, what do they do? 
Well, in, in, our, in the ET system or the Unity platform, which is a software platform that runs these controllers, um, if you're not using weather, you just simply turn it off. It doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be used by any means. And so we're going to go into, on this particular site, they're just putting a, their, own, their own schedule in. We did the math up front. We, we put in all the variables um, for precip and flow and whatnot, um, just for the flow alarm reasons. But as far as the weather data actually changing the schedule, we've just turned that function off. We've turned flow on and um, you can still see the weather in the preview, as I mentioned. It just doesn't apply to those particular stations. And then they have, a, they have outdoor area that we're gonna run off of this at one point and we'll turn the weather on for those stations. So just cause you have you know, 15 zones inside or uh, 20 zones inside and 20 outside, doesn't mean that you can't apply the ET um, you know, uh, formula to just the outside zones and not the inside zones. And so that's what we're doing right now is we've just turned off ET functionality and we're just using flow and um, manual scheduling. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, that's really, uh, I'll take questions in a second. That was about it for the irrigation, but there are other components involved. And uh, I know personally, I've had to verse myself on some of them. Uh, the pumping systems, I was, I wanted to get into pump sizing a little bit. It can be a hairy situation. I think uh, uh, we covered a couple weeks ago in our components of drip irrigation, we talked about friction loss and uh, you know how turbulence can move around the lines and we can lose a lot of pressure and flow. So uh, I, I recommend referencing that maybe a little bit more for pump sizing questions. You can also reach out to me offline. Uh, but the pump systems we use like this dab, these green ones right here, they're only, you know, one to five horsepower. They're not used to the, they don't typically use, indoor growers don't typically use five to 20 to 50, 60 gallon horsepower, you know, uh, vertical turbine pumps. You're inside, you're, the, ideally you're trying to move as little water as possible in a limited amount of time to, to reduce that indoor liability. And these pumps have very good breakdowns um, or breakaways where if they see an issue, they'll stop running. So they'll work in conjunction with our controller. So if they see flaws, you have you know, two, two different steps of, uh, of protection. Um, and so this is a dab pump DAB, a leader is another big one. There's these red leader pumps that I see all over the place. And then the bigger ones, like the big Midwest one, they, they're going to use Grunfos uh, pumps because they're, all, they're also moving water from a well into a reservoir through an RO system, um, through a cooling tank and through a, di a couple different components. Um, so they need that additional horsepower on the smaller systems. They're going to use something like this. And they're also going to try to catch water. We don't want water. You know, one of the main reasons the joke used to be in the 80s and uh, the 70s, if you saw water running out of a garage, you knew what was going on there, or if the roof didn't have snow on it in the middle of winter. So all these things, um, you know, we really don't have to worry about anymore. So they want to recycle the water. They want to um, reuse the water and catch it. So they're going to, growers are going to do that in trays like this, usually with six inch walls on them. Um, and they're going to drill drains into them and drop, uh, drop little drain inserts. Uh, lighting is obviously huge. Uh, I know enough about lighting to be dangerous, but not enough to, to, to preach about it. It's, uh, it is definitely a science, very much like irrigation, where you have to know what you're doing um, and the health of your crop depends on it. And then finally, uh, these are little smart bee controllers. These are an example of kind of an environmental sensor that exists. Uh, we can't, when you have 6,000 plants per room, it's hard to put a soil sensor in every one. Uh, and battery technology doesn't really exist to put up even a soil sensor you know, arguably people will say you can put 20 to 30 to a room, but when you have 6,000 plants, I don't really think that that's a pretty good cross section of what's going on. I think you're better off looking at the water and the, um, the nutrients of the plant usage than, uh, than you are keeping an eye on soil moisture in every single plant. 
uh, fans, trays, wire, all these things, PVC, uh, all need to be mounted properly indoors just in case there is a break. Nobody gets a, there's no electrical liability. Um, and besides that, I, uh, here's my name and phone number. So feel free to call me after hours and on the weekend with any questions. Michael, great presentation, and you did a great job of answering the questions, a lot of the questions as we went along. Uh, I still have a few more, though. Uh, the first one is, um, in general, you know, this is an uh, interesting, uh, uh, interesting business, right? We saw a big surge in the amount of people that were getting in uh, indoor growing business a couple years ago. Maybe it leveled off, maybe it didn't. Where are we right now in the, uh, in the life cycle of uh, business growth? Um, so... Currently, uh, for cannabis, uh, there's 18, 19 states that have it, have it legal to some extent. Um, you know, uh, combined with the hemp market, there's definitely a lot of opportunity in marijuana in general. Um, in the on the cannabis side, I think there was there was an inrush about five to four years ago, and then with the legalization, there was also a huge supply issue where there was a lot of people growing it, and then nobody needed it, and then everybody needed it, and you, when you have a limited amount of people, I mean, where were we just at in Ohio? There's only 12 licensed holders. So, um, you know, but over 600 people need the, the medicine, not to mention wholesale. So what ends up happening is as the states slowly legalize it, uh, you hope the infrastructure exists to, to produce the supply for the demand. And as more states legalize it, the supply grows. And as these you know, if you're growing indoors, you're growing four to five different yields a year. That's way different than a seasonal crop outdoors. So it allows a grower to grow year round. Um, so just like soy or any other uh, advantageous crop right now, people are moving their site indoors. A lot of farmers are building big warehouses in Colorado uh, to be able to grow stuff inside. And as soon as they get the science down, it's so profitable. Why wouldn't you? But the demand for CBDs, hemp, um, you know, cannabis, flour, all of that is only going to go up, uh, you know, I, I've heard plenty of numbers in the next five years of being bigger than most. Uh, yeah. Crops. Now the light bulb went on for me about a year and a half ago. I went into a grocery store in Arizona, a very conservative state. And uh, at the end of the line, you know, as impulse item when you're checking out was a lot of CBD oils and lotions. And I thought, okay, this is really going mainstream. Yeah. I mean, CBD with THC is, is one of the ways a lot of the states are able to get the medicine out to, you know, terminally ill cancer patients and people that need it. And so a lot of these conservative states might not sell flour at a retail market, um, but they still sell some form of an extract, an extract with, uh, with THC in it, which requires usually to grow inside that big project that we were working on um, that I just showed all the photos from was just for that. It was an extract with C with uh, high CBD or CBN, I believe it is CBG and, uh, and THC uh, for terminally ill cancer patients throughout Canada. So uh, there's plenty of applications for it. And it, the, as the scope of growers and resources grows, so does the, uh, the end use and the retail distribution of it. So it's only going to get bigger. Yeah. And do these uh, indoor growers have problems with algae or bacteria or things like that in the water? Um, so when you go in these rooms, you definitely have to wear nets. And I mean, it's just like a food processing plant because the fear of getting aphids or uh, attracting aphids from one room to the other is, is substantial. I mean, even visiting, taking photos, filming, as you've seen, uh, we're completely covered head to toe in, uh, in protective gear to make sure that nothing from the outside comes inside. Inside the issues I've seen, um, 
I'm definitely not a plant specialist, but what some of the things I've seen are like black spots or uh, aphids are obviously a huge one. Uh, it tend, typically the problem I see is usually obviously because we're in irrigation is just yellow plants when you walk in the room because they're substantially overwatered, underwater, nutrients are inconsistent. And so it's more the canopy um, not being even and then the plant just not looking healthy, burned edges maybe from a little too much light or it's getting water during its light cycle. All these little variables come into play. You can tell right away what's wrong with the system or I can irrigation wise. Um, but if I had to look at a, a leaf and look at the little flies and I've heard anything from ladybugs uh, to, to solve these problems, um, I'm not really sure. But it, we're definitely trying to not bring any outside issues in inside all the time. Yeah, and what about like algae or bacteria in the water? Is that an issue? Um, so yeah, that's why a lot of these systems pump ozone, they'll pump pH, they're, they're definitely trying to keep everything clean, every crop, uh, if not a couple times throughout the th uh, 60 or 70 day cycle, uh, they're going to be flushing the lines with some form of enzyme cleaner uh, that's going to try to reduce any algae. The usually typically where you see bacteria and algae buildup is in the reservoirs prior to the irrigation system. I mean, we're responsible for distributing the water, but if the water quality is not spot on or it's sitting somewhere where it's getting UV hitting it, the tanks aren't UV protected, you're going to get a film or algae buildup on the top. And that's why it's, it's definitely necessary to keep your reservoirs uh, cycling either with a little pump or, you know, just doing it, doing it by hand can sometimes be an issue. A lot of growers try to do it by hand right before the watering cycle starts. And you get this, like these chunks that build up in the bottom. And then by the time you get to the end of the cycle, you're just moving dirt. And so a lot of that stuff's on the primary side. So you just want to make sure your water and your reservoirs stay clean. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, Michael. We're just about out of time now. And uh, have any uh, final thoughts or closing messages you'd like to leave everybody with? Uh, no, I, I mean, we do this and I support, you know, Jane Company across the country for this. We've been in every state where it's, where it's legal. And so we're always willing to talk to you guys and support, you know, the irrigation aspect of these grows. So just reach out to me if you need anything. <laughs> okay. And I think uh, you were saying as a thank you today for uh, joining us on the, uh, on the Lunch and Learn. Uh, you were going to make an offer? Oh, yeah. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> <clears throat> yeah, any Octobelder purchase, 10% off. So anyone on the call today, if you want to email me and you want to buy some Octobelders, we can give you an additional 10% off your price. And that'll be for the rest of this week or for the next week? What, what's that going to be for? Um, uh, that's till our next Friday training. So that'll be for the next week. Yeah. Okay. Nice offer. Very generous. Thank you, uh, Michael. Great job today. Thank you uh, for attending all of you that joined us today. And uh, we'll be back next week on uh, Wednesday and Friday. We'll be talking about ag technology on Wednesday and uh, then another uh, ag uh, discussion about uh, drip irrigation on Friday. Uh, don't forget, you can see all our webinars on our website. Just go to the janesusa.com and uh, search in uh, webinars and you'll get to our page and we have about 19 of them up there now. So thanks very much again to everybody. And thank you, Michael. And we'll no see problem. you all next week. Thanks, guys.